The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. We are going through our short four-week summer series on the book of Jonah. So if you want to go ahead and take out your Bibles or your apps, whatever it is you use to follow along, uh, open up to Jonah chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the seats in front of you. And we would invite you again to go out to our Welcome Center after the service. We have a small gift for you that includes a Bible that we would love to give you so you can take home and read it. Our sermon series is called A Gracious God and His Graceless Prophet, and those are kind of two big ideas that we hope as we study this book together that as we see how graceless Jonah is, we really come to see how gracious and loving and kind our God is to us. So let's go ahead and start by reading this morning. Our scripture passage will be beginning in chapter 1, verse 17, through the end of chapter 2. Let's jump into this together. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. As we have prayed and continue to pray, we are fully dependent on you, so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our hearts and minds to understand your word. Help us to sit under it and not over it, judging it for ourselves, but in humble submission to what you would teach us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the early 5th century AD, there was a Christian monk by the name of Telemachus. He came from what is now modern-day Turkey, and he went to Rome. And while he was in Rome, he wanted to go see the infamous gladiator games that he had heard so much about. And so he went to the stadium, climbed up to his seat, and the games began to unfold, and he was struck, he was horrified by the gruesome violence and the murder and the killing that he saw in those gladiator games. And so the monk, he got out of his seat, he climbed down to the arena, and he started to get in front of the gladiators, pleading with them, in the name of Jesus, please stop your killing. Stop murdering each other. I beg you in the name of Jesus to stop. 
the crowd was enraged that their entertainment would be so disrupted. They picked up their stones, and within minutes, Telemachus was dead. Decadent, indulgent societies do not like to be called to repentance. Jonah knew that, and he knew that about Nineveh. He knew that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. He knew that it was an emerging world power known for its violence and its sin. He even knew that they were a threat to Israel. As we see as the story of Israel unfolds, it's going to be Assyria that will topple Jonah's home in the northern kingdom. Had Jonah been afraid for his life, had he been afraid that he might end up like Telemachus, perhaps we would be a little bit sympathetic to Jonah. Perhaps we would say, I understand your fear because I might be the same way. But as observant readers of the book of Jonah, we know that his motivations for running away from the Lord, that his motivations for not wanting to share the message of grace with the Ninevites was a little bit more selfish and sinful than that. Jonah, we saw last week, is the antagonist in his own story. Now, there are some stories that are known to us today, like, for example, uh, the Broadway play Wicked, right? And Wicked is one of these stories that takes a known villain and tries to paint the villain in a sympathetic and new light. Jonah is not one of those stories. Jonah is not painted in a sympathetic light in this book at all. The book of Jonah is bookended in chapters 1 and 4 by a prophet in chapter 1 who is obviously greedy, obviously selfish, obviously uh, filled with sinful nationalism, wants to run away from the Lord, doesn't want to share the message of grace with the Ninevites. He could care less about the sailors that he's on the boat with. He could care less about their perilous predicament, even though it's his fault. In chapter 4, we find a prophet who's angry at God for being gracious towards the city of Nineveh. And so these bookends are important for us because when we get to chapters 2 and 3, it appears for a moment that we see maybe a very different Jonah. His prayer is beautiful. His preaching is doctrinal and it's forceful. And yet we under, know his underlying motivations, don't we? And so we can't help but notice maybe the ironies and the hypocrisies of Jonah's actions and his prayers, no matter how good they appear on the surface. Is Jonah's prayer one of obedience and true repentance? Or is it a prayer, or is it a prayer the words of a self-deceived and morally pretentious prophet? Regardless of how we might answer these questions this morning, our passage warns us of our own pretentiousness, our pride, our superstitions, and it shows us how to lean into a full-hearted life in devotion and obedience to the Lord Jesus. There's three scenes in our story this morning. We'll take each scene in turn together. The first scene is the depths of the fish. The depths of the fish. I noticed when I read verse 17 this morning that there were no gasps in the room. No doubt, the book of Jonah is a story that's familiar to most of us. But... Let's not forget what is happening in the story that we're reading. Jonah is thrown overboard in the middle of a raging storm where a large fish comes up from under him, 
swallows him, where he proceeds to live in its belly for three days and for three nights, seemingly unharmed, after which the fish then brings him to the shore, vomits him back out, and he goes about his merry way. Do you realize that's crazy? Like, let's not let the familiarity of the story miss that this is crazy, this is miraculous. Now, for some people, this is kind of a sticking point in the story. For some people, the miracles of the fish and the sun standing still and other miracles in the Bible, it becomes a sticking point for, well, I'm not sure if I can quite believe that. I can't quite believe the claims of Christianity because something like that happened. There's this common belief today that if something is miraculous, then it can't be true and historical. And in order for something to be true and historical, it has to be unmiraculous. This is a view that is commonly associated with what we call secularism today. And at root in secularism is kind of this idea that we live in a closed universe, that nothing from outside breaks in, that the only reality that that is true is what we can perceive, what we can test, what we can see with our hands. There's no concept of the supernatural breaking in or being at work in our world. Maybe you're here this morning and that's a view that you hold. Maybe you look at the book of Jonah and you say, yep, book of Jonah is why I can't believe the claims of Christianity, because of the fish. Well, if you're here, and that's a view that you have, I, I want to address that briefly just for a moment. I want to gently challenge you in two ways, all right? So the first way I want to challenge you is I want you to be willing to acknowledge that if this is a view that you hold, that the supernatural is not at work in our world, that we're kind of in this closed universe. I want you to be willing to acknowledge that that would put you in the vast minority of the global population, There was a time where there was a belief that as the world became more educated and more industrialized, it would simultaneously become less religious and there would be less belief in the supernatural. But that theory actually hasn't played out over time. You look at populations in South America and in China that are more educated and more industrialized than they've ever been and increasingly becoming more religious than they've ever been. And you look at countries like in Western Europe or Canada that for a long time have been ahead of us on this so-called secular curve are now kind of coming back and around and they're finding that, you know what, this wasn't as satisfying as we first thought it would be. Not only is it unsatisfying, but it's not really tenable to hold together in a cohesive way. So let's just kind of put this, this, this secular belief that there's no supernatural, there's no outside forces, it's kind of put it in the minority of the global population and we're actually seeing less and less of it today than more and more of it. So just be willing to acknowledge that maybe it's not as popular of a belief as you think it is. The second thing that I want to encourage you in is to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. If the fish is your reason for not believing in the claims of Christianity, that's a really bad reason. It's a really bad reason because at the end of the day, the the whale or the fish in the book of Jonah, other miracles that we see in the Bible, they're really just a drop in the ocean for God. Really just a drop in the ocean for God. But there's one miracle that is above the rest. There's one miracle that stands out as being unlike all the rest. And that is Jesus coming in the flesh, God becoming man. There's an author by the name of Rebecca McLaughlin. She just came out with a book called 12 Questions Confronting Christianity. If this is a a topic you wanna get into more, I encourage you to pick up this book, 12 Questions Confronting Christianity. And one of the things that she does in this book is she interviews scientists from institutions like MIT or from Cambridge. And for these scientists, it's their science that's actually reason for belief, not unbelief. 
So if that's something that you want to explore more, I encourage you to pick this book up. But one of the scientists that she interacts with is by the name of Jonathan Fang. And Jonathan Fang has this great quote that I think captures the essence of what I'm trying to get at. And he said this, What is truly amazing about the Christian faith is the idea that God made the universe, from quarks to galaxies. But at the same time, he cared enough about us to be born as a human being, to come down, to die and be crucified in the person of Jesus, and to bring forgiveness and new life to broken people. That's Dr. Jonathan Fang. He's a a physicist and astronomy professor at UC Irvine. So this is the miracle you have to wrestle with. This is the miracle of the Bible. If you're going to start anywhere of where you want to wrestle with the story of the Bible, it's Jesus. Start with Jesus and the miracle of God becoming man. Because if Jesus is true, if the historical person of Jesus is true, then his words and his works are also true. And Jesus spoke of Jonah and the events of Jonah as a real historical event. So you see, we start with Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, I want to just encourage you to do that. Don't get lost in the fish. Get lost in Jesus. The big fish, though, while not being really central to the whole story of the scriptures or even really central to the book of Jonah, it does play an important part in our story. Because up to this point, the story of Jonah is a story of descent. Some of you have seen this pattern in the book of Jonah. We see Jonah going down to Joppa. And then he goes down into a ship. And then he's down into the depths of the ship. And now he's down deep in the belly of a fish in the depths of the ocean. He has hit rock bottom. And that is where we see our second scene beginning with Jonah's prayer. And it's important that we spend some time looking at Jonah's prayer together this morning because really the same themes that we see running throughout the whole book of Jonah are here in these nine verses in Jonah's prayer. And the first thing I think we can point out, first thing that we can say, is this is a really good prayer, right? This is a good prayer. I mean, if you look at it, it's filled with scriptural allusions and quotations. And if you have a reference Bible, you'll see that almost every other line and every phrase is pointing to some other psalm or some other passage in the Old Testament. This is a good prayer by someone who appeared to know his Hebrew scriptures, There's these common images of the waves and the floods and the billows overtaking our life. There's the appeal to temple worship. There's even this great cry in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord, which many people would say is the central theme of all of Scripture. This is a good prayer. And I think if we could say nothing else about the prayer, it's that it's a positive example to us that knowing Scripture by heart is important. Jonah is a positive example to us of being well-disciplined in Scripture, of knowing our Scripture, being able to quote it from memory because there are times in our lives throughout the day when the Bible is not readily available to us and to be able to recall the words that we have memorized as God is working in our hearts and our lives. That's an important discipline. This last week I was with our college group and we were talking about uh, spiritual formation And so one of the questions that I had for our college group was, what in their youth group experience was maybe most formative for them in their spiritual disciplines? Many of our college students went through youth group together. and They had many things to say about their positive experience in youth group. But one thing that several of the students said was the emphasis on spiritual disciplines. 
the emphasis on scripture memorization, these practices, these disciplines that have stuck with them now as college students that they can recall and they can go back to. And I can tell you as someone who didn't have that youth group experience that I am lacking severely in something that our youth group students are not lacking in. They have a discipline that has been hard for me to learn as an adult. But fortunately, it's never too late to start good habits, is it? It gets harder, but it's never too late. And so if nothing else, Jonah is a great example to us of knowing our scripture, of knowing our Bibles. But Jonah is also a negative example to us in quite a few ways. And we see that when we begin to read Jonah's prayer in light of the rest of the story. We come to see that many of these lines, many of these phrases, they're quite ironic. And they're even pretentious for this prophet to be saying. So there's four brief things that I want us to see, four negative examples from Jonah's prayer. The first thing is this. I want you to note how opportunistic Jonah's prayer is. How opportunistic Jonah's prayer is. He had every opportunity to pray on the boat. He had every opportunity to change the outcome of the storm while he was on the boat. He knew the raging storm was his fault, but his response was not to pray. It was the pagan sailors who prayed. It was they who repented. And unbeknownst to Jonah, it was they who made sacrifices to God after Jonah was off the boat. But now, in the belly of the fish, he decides to pray. Now, is praying in a crisis the right response? Absolutely. That is the right response when we are in crisis to pray. But if we are only praying in crisis... If we are only praying when we want things from God, that betrays something of a hollow relationship with the Lord, doesn't it? So first, Jonah's prayer is opportunistic. Second, I want you to see how selfish this prayer is. Note especially the language he uses in verses three and five with the waves and the waters washing over me to take my life. Who else had waves and waters and billows overtaking them and threatening them to take their life? The sailors. And does Jonah seem even the least bit concerned about them now? No. All attention is on him. And this really takes us to the central theme in the book of Jonah, what many scholars would say is the central theme in the book of Jonah. It's this relationship between God's mercy and his justice. Jonah is comfortable singing praises to God and appealing to God for his salvation so long as it benefits him. But extending that same mercy and grace to others, extending that same mercy and grace to his enemies, not a chance. There's a question that some of you may have heard before. It's a question that I often come back to. It's very challenging for me. Uh, It's a question that I left with our community group for the summer to wrestle with. And the question goes like this. If all of your prayers were answered today, would anything change for the people around you? In your neighborhood? In your county? In your workplace? Or would things only change for you? 
something that we have to see as Christians is that God never gets our place wrong. The place where he puts us, he never gets it wrong. Rosaria Butterfield, an author, she is known to say quite often that God never gets the address wrong. Jonah thought God got the address wrong on the boat, and he thought God got the address wrong in going to Nineveh. But God never gets our place or our address wrong. And so the question is, who in your midst, who in your neighborhood, who in your workplace is God calling on you to be interceding for? You know, some people in this world, the closest they will ever get to grace is a Christian praying on their behalf. Who has God put in our lives to be interceding and praying for regularly? Let's not pray merely selfish prayers like Jonah, but selfless prayers as we think of others in our lives. So Jonah's prayer is opportunistic, it's selfish. Third, I want you to see how superstitious his prayer is. He has the right words, he has the right doctrine, he even has the right practices of appealing to temple worship. Pretty good. But did it mean anything for Jonah? With what we know about how this story ends, his words appear to be nothing more than a superstitious appeal to ward off judgment and consequence for himself. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Scott Redd, he's the president of RTSDC, he says that one of the things we see throughout the scripture is this tendency toward a kind of pious superstition. And it's a tendency that we're prone to as well. Dr. Dr. Redd, he calls it a talisman theology when we're putting hopes in the lucky rabbit's feet of our lives, in our actions, in objects, or in words. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. I think we see it here in Jonah. We saw it in our reading from Jeremiah. Right? This is what Jeremiah is condemning the people for. They had thought that because they had the temple, because they had the temple worship, they could use it as a justification, as a loophole, that God was going to excuse all of this egregious sin in their lives. But what does Jonah say? You have trust, or sorry, what does Jeremiah say? You have trusted in deceptive words. We see it in the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 10, when the, the Corinthian people, they're putting in their hope, and we have the Lord's Supper, and so that means that we can kind of do whatever we want. We can participate in idol worship. We can ignore the poor in our midst so long as we have the Lord's Supper. We see it in Jesus' critique of both the, the Pharisees and the Gentiles. He critiques the Pharisees for having this sort of eloquent public worship that seems, they seem to equate with godliness, and he rebukes the Gentiles for having this repetitious, many-worded prayer that really doesn't mean anything. Talisman theology is when we put our hope in objects or words or actions thinking that we can either get something from God or that we can sort of ignore or justify the sin in our lives. Jonah's talisman theology was found in having all the right words and doctrine, but it only served to justify his nationalism and his pride in our lives can take the form of many things. Maybe it's when we start to see uh, the words, I pray in Jesus' name as a kind of incantation rather than as a pledge of total devotion to the Lord. Or maybe we start to think that if I do enough quiet times or I go to church or I'm involved enough in the church that the Lord is gonna protect me and my family. When we put hope in other things other than the grace and the kindness of the Lord, it's a superstition, not a genuine dependence on the grace that we can receive in Jesus. So Jonah's prayer, opportunistic, selfish, superstitious, and finally, it's pretentious. 
It's filled with moral pretense. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jonah says that those who worship idols forsake God's steadfast love. He's not wrong. But who do, who do you think he's talking about? The sailors and the Ninevites, right? Yet who is it in the story that turns and repents? The sailors and the Ninevites. Who is it that makes vows of repentance and new obedience? The sailors and the Ninevites. And who is it at the end who is stuck in his bitterness and his selfishness and his pride serving his own heart idols? Jonah. We may want to give Jonah some kind of credit for a spiritual breakthrough here, but we know at the end of the day, he hasn't really grasped grace as well as he should have. There is still a sense of superiority and self-righteousness behind his words. He can see the physical idols of the pagans, but he can't see the idols in his own heart. Or, to put it in Jesus' words, he can see the specks in others, but he can't see his own logs. We are in a scary place when we become like Jonah and when the words of Scripture start to become a tool to make us feel more righteous and to make others look more unrighteous. We're in a dangerous place when the Bible becomes a kind of selective weapon that we read to make ourselves feel better and make others look worse. The Proverbs, they warn that the mark of uh, a foolish, of evil fools is to look wise or to feel wise in your own eyes. If we read the Bible and we feel more righteous and we see others as more unrighteous, we're misreading and misusing the Bible. Pastor Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, he says that we're only correctly using the scriptures if when we read it, we are humbled, if we are critiqued, and if we are encouraged in the grace of God, despite our flaws, despite our sin. When the Bible, when the scriptures become selective reading for us to make us appear more righteous, it just makes us morally pretentious. And people can smell it from a mile away. They can smell it from a mile away. But if we truly believe the gospel, everything that the gospel says about us, then we ought to recognize that we have no basis to have any claim on grace. It's not grace if you have a claim on it. We would be the first to recognize that we deserve nothing from the Lord. Unfortunately, so often, the church and Christians in the church are not known for their humility and their grace, but for their pride and their pretense and their hypocrisy. I want to read for you a quote by uh, Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman. I just want you to listen to this. They're two researchers and authors with the Barna Research Group. It's a quote that I came across that was deeply convicting to me. I just want you to listen and see how this quote makes you feel. It's from a book that came out a few years ago. They said this, in virtually every study we conduct representing thousands of interviews every year, born-again Christians fail to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. For instance, based on a study released in 2007, we found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were statistically equivalent to those of non-born-agains. When asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, born-again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble, 
to visit a pornographic website, to take something that did not belong to them, to consult a medium or psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescription drug, to have said something that was not true to someone, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. When you hear that, what is your first instinct? Is it to get defensive? Maybe to find a way to excuse yourself from what this quote is saying about us? Or is it to lament? To lament for our sin, for the sins in our churches? If we start to feel self-righteous or defensive about the culture's attitude toward the church, then maybe we're sinning just like Jonah. Maybe we're more like Jonah than we want to admit. I know that I'm more like Jonah than I want to admit. I too often get defensive on being unwilling to ask for forgiveness, to admit my own sin to my wife or to a friend or to a church member. I'm more like Jonah than I want to admit. How about you this morning? This takes us to our third and final scene, dry land. How are you feeling about Jonah right now? What do you think? Pretense? Or repentance? I'm not going to answer that question for you this morning. I want you to wrestle with that this week. But what I want to suggest to you is that maybe that's not supposed to be an easy question for us to answer. Because the work of God's grace in the lives of sinners is not something that is neat and easy. Now, there's a reason why I spent time beating up on Jonah this morning. It's all going to a, for a purpose. Because the more we understand the weight of sin, the more we see ourselves in Jonah, I think the sweeter God's grace becomes to us. Because Jonah deserved death, not, a, not, a, not deliverance. His disobedience, his apathy, his carelessness, his nationalism, his self-righteousness, he deserved nothing. And yet Yahweh graciously delivered Jonah by supernatural intervention, by special intervention through the appointing of the fish, all so that Jonah could recognize how great the Lord's compassion and kindness was, all so that it would melt his heart so that he would return again in repentance to his God. This is the idea that Paul, the Apostle Paul, conveys to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, Indeed, We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. When we feel the weight of our sin, we see the grace of God as even being even sweeter in our lives. This sudden turn of events in chapter 2 serves the whole purposes of the book because it's going to set us up and prepare us for chapter 3, which we're going to hear about next week. Nineveh, like Jonah, they deserve death, not deliverance. And yet Nineveh is also going to be graciously delivered. But unlike Jonah, Nineveh is going to respond and take God's word to heart as soon as they hear it. The mercy that God shows to Jonah, in spite of his direct disobedience, in spite of his sin, removes any right that Jonah has to withhold the same grace and mercy to others. And 
so once we read Jonah's prayer, we cannot help but be struck by his attitude the rest of the book. Imagine being a first-time hearer or reader. You are set up to expect that Jonah is going to bear fruit in keeping with his repentance, that he's going to live this new life, turn over a new leaf. But as the story unfolds, we see anything but. His heart is just as hard as ever. As we said, the main purpose of the book of Jonah is to teach us a lesson about God's grace and his mercy, the relationship between God's mercy and his justice. In the book of Jonah, we see that our God is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. And so we err. We are in serious error when we start to put people in boxes when we start to put labels on people, thinking that they are less deserving of the same grace that we have received from Jesus. Jonah was not wrong when he declared salvation belongs to the Lord. God was completely sovereign over the fish to save him from the waters, and now God is completely sovereign over the fish and putting him back on dry land. Jonah and the fish had no control over Jonah's salvation. God rescues his ungracious and disobedient prophet, not because he deserves it, but because he is a gracious God. And Jonah's mistake was in thinking he was deserving, somehow, of the deliverance he had been shown by the Lord. And so we too are in great sin when we begin to presume on the grace of God, thinking that we deserve it and that others do not. This is what leads to superstition to pretentiousness, to hypocrisy in the Christian life. But God is kind, and he is gracious, and he is patient with us, that we might turn again and know his love and his mercy. And this is a love and a mercy that we can now only receive through Jesus. I came across a story this week of a missionary to Nicaragua, And in his story, his account of going to Nicaragua, he was talking about how he went down to serve in this uh, terrible, uh, poor community that was just racked with sin and violence and oppression. And it was when he was confronted with so much sin, so much poverty, so much wickedness, for really the first time in his life, that he started to see something about himself. He started to see that he really wasn't as virtuous as he thought he was. He started to see that he had lived a life where he thought he wanted to be good or he thought he wanted to live a life that was pleasing to God. But really he saw the whole time he just wanted the appearance of looking good to others. He'd been putting up a front his whole life. But he said when that happened, when he was confronted with the sin around him and the sin of his own life, that was when grace became sweet to him in a whole new way. You see, Jesus, unlike Jonah, willingly obeys his father's commands. He comes to earth, takes on human flesh, lives the life that we couldn't live, dies the death that we should have died, delivers to us the message of good news. In moments of darkness and of pain and of suffering, it wasn't himself that he was thinking of or even praying for, but it was for us. Praying that we would know God's love, that we would turn, that we would know him, and that we would trust in the salvation that he provides. In his resurrection, we have hope for a new life. And we see that it's possible to find a new life of love and of grace and of mercy 
that can be extended to us sinners who are undeserving of the forgiveness of God. And when that reality begins to take a hold of our hearts, unlike Jonah, we will be moved with a great gratitude and awe. We will see that we are just as undeserving of grace as anybody else. Our categories, our boxes, our exclusivity, our pride, our self-righteousness, our superstitions, our pretentiousness, they will all collapse like a house of cards. And our hearts will be open to those who we never thought they could have been open to before, even our most bitter enemies. Let's pray. Father, in Jonah, we see just how gracious you are, that you would love and pursue someone like Jonah, that you would love and pursue a city like Nineveh. Lord, that gives us comfort because then we see in Jesus that you would love and pursue sinners like us. Father, this morning, I pray that you would save sinners that you would wake up sleepy Christians, that you would help us to repent of our superstitions and our pretentiousness and teach us to trust in your grace and your kindness and your mercy alone, not in anything that is in us. Help us this morning, Lord, we pray. We plead and we pray this and we ask all of this in Christ's name, who is our hope. Amen.